It's Monday, February 12th. The Senate finally closes in on a foreign aid deal. We start here. While former President Trump suggests the U.S. shouldn't defend NATO allies. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. The Senate is full steam ahead on a foreign aid package worth billions. Israel prepares to launch a ground assault on a border town in Gaza, home to more than one million people who fled the war. This is a city which has grown in size six times since October 7th. We take you to Israel to understand where all those refugees could go. And the land of the free and the home of the bet. An unexpected Super Bowl controversy emerges over the national anthem. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Elizabeth Schulze. Hey, Brad's off today, but I got you covered in the meantime. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, the NATO Security Alliance has taken a more prominent role on the world stage. Ukraine isn't a member of NATO, but countries on its border like Poland are. NATO's creed is an attack on one is an attack on all. So if a NATO country is attacked, that means the rest of the alliance, including the United States, would mobilize in self-defense. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. Well, this weekend, former President Trump threw cold water on that principle, suggesting that he would not stop Russia from attacking a NATO country if that country doesn't spend enough money on defense. Let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. To be clear, there are no NATO bills that are due. Member countries make a commitment to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, and fewer than half of NATO countries did that last year. Former President Trump has been critical of the alliance for years, but this latest remark drew immediate sharp rebukes from top U.S. allies, who suggested that it threatened to upend global security and put American troops at risk. NATO's general secretary saying in a statement today, any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security. And yet, while the former president and Republican presidential frontrunner is dismissing the need for any foreign aid, the U.S. Senate is going ahead with its own agenda. I can't remember the last time the Senate was in session on Super Bowl Sunday. The Senate held a rare Sunday session where it voted to move one step closer toward passing a massive $95 billion foreign aid package that includes funding for Israel and Ukraine. So today it's no exaggeration to say that the eyes of the world are on the United States Senate. ABC's Ali Pecorin covers the Senate. And Ali, I want you to just walk us through this bill right now that the Senate is trying to pass. Yeah, the Senate is hard at work, um, or at least moving at a snail's pace through a series of (laughs) very confusing procedural hurdles. Um, But the final result will likely be passage of this multi-billion dollar national defense package. The main components of the bill include billions for Ukraine. If America doesn't assist Ukraine, Putin is all too likely to succeed. 10 billion to aid Israel in its fight against Hamas. Ever since the establishment of the modern Jewish state of Israel in 1948, America has stood by her. There is a ton of money in there aimed at replenishing the U.S. military stockpile Mm. and production capacity for U.S. weapons because the United States has been giving a lot of its weapons to Ukraine to aid it in its fight. We equip our friends to face our shared adversaries 
so we're less likely to have to spend American lives. There's also billions for Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific that Republicans and Democrats alike are hoping will help deter Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. Okay, so I hear you talking about a lot of money for other countries, but we've been talking about this foreign aid package for months, and one thing that has always been included is money for the border. You know, the White House and both parties had said that that would come along with this additional money for Ukraine and Israel. Is that border effort now totally done. What a journey we've been on, Elizabeth. Um, Over the last four months, the Senate has been trying to find a way to move forward with a national security package that also includes border funding and border policy provisions. What ended up happening with that is that you saw months of negotiations behind the scenes by a small group of bipartisan negotiators who put forward a bill last week. It took the Senate a matter of hours to turn on that bill. Even though the product was approved by the the Border Council that endorsed President Trump, most of our members feel that we're not going to be able to make a law here. Senate Republicans, they did not like those border provisions. A lot of them said they weren't strong enough. There's also a number of them that were swayed by arguments from former President Trump, who wants to use the border as a campaign issue. I understand the former president is desperately trying to stop this bill because it's not he's not interested in solving the border problem. He wants a political issue to run against me. Trump suggested that they not pass these border provisions and the Senate fell right in line with that. Republicans resolutely rejected moving forward on that. We crushed crooked Joe Biden's disastrous open borders bill. So in response, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer put forward this bill um, that includes all of those national security provisions without anything to address the border. Some Republicans, they're still not happy with that. But given that there's a lot of disagreement about how to proceed in the Senate, which is a body that notoriously requires unanimous agreement to do much, What is increasingly likely is that we're going to vote on this national security money um, sometime in this coming week, likely Tuesday or Wednesday, and that it will not do anything to address the border. Okay, so no border funds. And yet Republicans in the Senate, at least, do seem to be on board with this almost $100 billion in foreign aid. Can this pass in the Senate, even with the opposition of the former president? That is was an open question for a while, but it does seem like that is going to happen. And that's because there are a number of defense hawks in the Senate that are so concerned about this increasing aggression from Vladimir Putin in Ukraine that are concerned about the status of things in Israel and that they are so concerned about those things that they're going to go ahead and allow this bill to progress, even though it doesn't include the border provisions that they once said were a necessity. We in the Senate owe it to the American people to both be honest to him and get something done. In test votes that have been happening on the Senate floor over the last couple of days, we've seen 17 Republicans voting in favor of moving things forward. That's going to be more than enough for this bill to pass because the only Democratic defector has been Senator Bernie Sanders. It is quite clear that beyond total destruction of Gaza, Netanyahu has no who is objecting to some of the provisions in here because he does not support funding Israel um, without conditions. And and that's a pretty sharp rebuke then of former President Trump, who's saying, you know, no foreign aid. What happens, Allie, then once this gets over to the House, which we know a lot of House Republicans a lot more beholden to the former president. And that's absolutely true. I mean, Trump's influence over the House Republican conference 
We've seen it in the last couple of days. We've felt it, right? We watched Trump tell House Republicans that he did not support the border package that the Senate was working on, and House Republicans declared that package dead on arrival. That said, in the Senate, since these remarks that Trump's made about NATO, about not giving foreign aid that isn't going to be repaid, the Senate hasn't seemed to have been as affected by that. The House hasn't been back in session since this happened. And House Speaker Mike Johnson hasn't really said what he's going to do with this bill once it comes to the House. We'll see what the Senate does. We're allowing the process to play out. There are Republicans in the House that do want this aid to pass, that are so concerned about Ukraine and so concerned about Israel that they're going to vote in favor of this anyway. But Johnson faces a bit of a politically precarious situation if he moves this forward because there are also a lot of Republicans in the House that really don't want to do this. Johnson may choose not to bring this bill to the floor, and Democrats may utilize a very, very um, uncommon procedural tool to force the floor to consider it anyway. That'll be an interesting thing to watch if it happens. But at this point, it's a little bit of an open question as to where we go. But what it does look like, at least after this kind of rare Sunday vote, is that the Senate, full steam ahead, at least moving forward with this huge package that has been back and forth, back and forth for months. Allie Bourne, thank you so much for breaking this all down and for being at the Senate on Super Bowl Sunday. Thanks, Elizabeth. Next up on Start Here, more than one million people fled to a border town in southern Gaza to escape the fighting. But now a ground invasion could be coming there, too. More after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. More than one million people right now are sheltering in the town of Rafa, which is right on the border of southern Gaza and Egypt. Its population is now six times what it was before the Israel-Hamas war began. As families have fled south to try to escape the fighting, most of them are now living there in tents. Rafa's location has also made it the critical entry point for humanitarian aid into Gaza. But now it appears to be the next target for Israel's military. If we leave, it'll be a tremendous victory for the Iran terror axis. It's bad for everyone. In an interview on ABC's This Week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel is preparing to launch a ground assault in Rafah to target Hamas terrorists, and he declared victory is within reach. And victory will be the best thing that will happen, not only for Israel, but for the Palestinians themselves. I Israel has already been targeting Rafah with airstrikes, and it conducted a new round of those strikes overnight. So let's get right to ABC foreign correspondent James Longman in Tel Aviv. James, just tell us what we know right now about Israel's plans to send its military on the ground into Rafah. 
Well, at the moment, uh, all Netanyahu is saying, the Prime Minister here, is that uh, total victory requires uh, a ground operation in Rafa, that there are four remaining Hamas battalions uh, in that area, and that they must be neutralised in order for the Israelis to meet their goals. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafa are basically saying, lose the war. Keep Hamas there. But he is being warned very heavily by the United States and others that this cannot start until civilians in Rafah have been moved out of the way. The president has been very clear that they must do so by ensuring that uh, their operations are targeted and conducted in a way that we are protecting innocent civilians. Now, Rafah is where... More than a million people have now basically fled to over the last four months. This is a city which has grown in size six times since October 7th. We've been suffering for more than five months. The place they said was safe, they entered it. There's no safe place. Most of the people who are there have moved multiple times. You know, when we speak to people inside uh, Gaza, we can't speak to them face to face because the Israelis don't let us in. But on the phone, they say they've moved six, seven, eight times. They have mm. family who are constantly on the move and they've made it to Rafah on the southern border with Egypt and this is their last refuge. It's not been completely safe because there have been airstrikes in the Rafah area but as far as a ground incursion goes, the Israelis have not uh, moved in. But we don't have precise details on what a military operation there would look like but if you look at the rest of Gaza, you see what happens when there's a military operation. Wide-scale destruction. Most of the rest of Gaza City and in the northern suburbs of the Gaza Strip are now basically completely unlivable. So, mm. if that is what the future for Gaza looks like, then it looks very bleak indeed. And I think the question so many are wondering is, where are those more than a million people who have fled supposed to go? I mean, is there some sort of evacuation plan? Well, Benjamin Netanyahu has said that they would go north. He has spoken about areas of the north that have been, quote unquote, cleared. No, well, the, the areas that we've cleared north of Rafa are uh, plenty of areas there. But uh, we are working out a detailed plan to do so. But, you know, all throughout this war, we have heard of uh, the Israelis designating, quote unquote, safe zones for Palestinians. But when Palestinians go there, they find, in fact, that often the bombs follow them. And it's not just the kind of mortal danger they face when they go to these places. It's the fact that they're just not sort of suitable for this many people. Right now, there are more than a million people living here. So there are not enough hospitals, not enough doctors, not enough beds to treat all those patients. People who tell us that there are more than 200 people using one toilet, there's no uh, sanitation, there's no regular access to food or water or medication. Mm. These are people living in destitution and the weather here has not been good so it's incredibly wet. You've got families living in tents. So Benjamin Netanyahu has spoken about an area north of Rafa which has been cleared for them to go to but whether or not they will want to go there given their experiences so far that is another thing and and I think also it's it's leaving other big questions you know that we only a few days ago Elizabeth we were reporting here on the possibilities for a ceasefire right we seemed like we were on the edge of something right with Hamas and Israel finally maybe agreeing to something the more than 100 hostages getting out of there 
But no, we, we seem now the focus is on Rafa and the focus is on a military escalation in the south. I think for the families, the hostages, as well as the people in Rafa, this is very bleak. And we heard yesterday President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a call. The White House kind of has this view that there needs to be an evacuation plan for this operation to go forward. It feels a little bit reading through the tea leaves of this, James, that there's more tension now between the White House and Netanyahu than there has been as the months have gone on. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, President Biden the other day said he felt that uh, Israel's response in Gaza has been um, over the top. We all thought, you know, maybe he didn't mean to say that. Maybe that was one of President Biden's sort of characteristic slip ups. And we thought perhaps after the phone call they had yesterday, there'd be kind of a much stronger, you know, usual statement from the United States saying that Israel has a right to defend itself, all the kind of stuff you normally see in these statements. But no, it was doubling down. President Biden saying he reaffirmed his view that a military operation in Rafah should not proceed without a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety of and support for the more than one million people sheltering there. Military operations right now would be a disaster for those people, and it's not something that we would support. We had that, and then we've had the National Security Council saying that the United States would not support uh, a military escalation in Rafah without uh, making sure that civilians weren't in the way. So, yeah, I think it's very clear that this pressure has been ratcheting up. I think, you know, domestically, the United States administration, other countries around the world as well, conscious that, you know, the pictures out of Gaza are not good. I do think that there's a sense that Israel knows that it's running slightly on on borrowed time with this military operation. I think it's part of the reason why Benjamin Netanyahu granted an interview to ABC, because he knows that public Mm. opinion perhaps is, is swinging against Israel on this. And we are so grateful for your analysis and reporting on the ground there. James Longman, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. Okay, one more quick break. And when we come back, Reba McIntyre stirs up emotions and chaos in the world of Super Bowl prop bets. One last thing is next. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. It was all bets on during the Super Bowl last night, with Americans wagering an estimated $23 billion on the big game. The range of bets included everything from the final score to how many times Taylor Swift appeared on camera to who would win the coin toss. Someone apparently bet $100,000 it would be tails, by the way, and they lost. But one of the most popular prop bets is always the duration of the national anthem. The longest ever version went to Alicia Keys back in 2013. Her rendition totaled an impressive 2 minutes and 36 seconds. The The shortest ever was Neil Diamond, who in 1987 clocked in at just 1 minute and 2 seconds.
Well, last night, Reba McIntyre had her moment singing the Star Spangled Banner, and by many accounts, including those on the field, the country star delivered. Cameras captured Chiefs defensive tackle Chris Jones with tears streaming down his face midway through the anthem. But it was the final few seconds that stirred up emotions in the betting community. Reba reached that final phrase of home of the brave, only to then quickly resoundingly repeat the brave as the crowd erupted and fireworks shot out of Allegiant Stadium. The repeat of the phrase quickly raised the question, when did the clock timing her out officially stop? One executive at betting company BetMGM was quick to post that it ended after the first The Brave when the lyrics ended, meaning her performance came in at 88 seconds instead of 95. Now that was controversial. The over-under on the bets had actually been 90.5 seconds, so the second The Brave really made a difference. FanDuel later declared that the overbets officially won since the song ended based on when the last note ended, not the last lyric. BetMGM ultimately ended up paying out both sides, saying everyone wins. All this to say, Reba's performance had people talking well into the actual game, undoubtedly raising the stakes for next year's national anthem. It turns out, by the way, that Reba was first discovered as a singer 50 years ago, singing the national anthem at National Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma. Not sure anyone was putting any bets on that rendition, though. Hey, congrats to all of the Chiefs fans out there. Condolences to any Niners fans, especially to our own Brad Milkey, who at least you got the day off out of it. I'm Elizabeth Schulze. I'll catch you next time.